0: Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Octopulse, our Detroit News, Detroit Red Wings podcast. I'm Mark Faulkner, Detroit News Assistant Sports Editor, joined by Ted Kaufman, our Red Wings Beat reporter. Coming up on the podcast, we'll hear from Hockey Hall of Famer Brian Troche, who was is Steve Eiserman's boyhood hero and the reason Eiserman wore number 19. But first, Ted, Simon Edvinson was recalled from Grand Rapids, and he'll make his NHL debut Saturday against the defending Stanley Cup champion, Colorado Avalanche at Little Caesars at 1 p.m. He's one of the keys, of course, to the rebuild, A mobile defenseman, as you wrote today at Detroitnews.com. He's 6'6, 209 pounds, a first-round draft pick in 2021, and led all the defensemen with the Griffins and scoring. With 27 points in 51 games so ted what can fans expect in edvinson's debut tomorrow and how long do you think he will be here
1: well i'll tell you my friend he's going to be easy to recognize he's the one that (laughs) looks like seven he looks like he's seven foot two inches tall on the ice um there'll be i think a lot of people are excited i just want to like to see how he fares and sure first NHL test here he's a great skater he's He makes a great first pass. A little bit more physical, I think, probably than a lot of people might suspect. So it'll be exciting. I think, you know, obviously this season has gone south here the last few weeks. So something like this, getting to see one of the pieces that, you know, could be a big part of the future. I think a lot of people are interested, obviously. It should be a fun afternoon.
0: Let's hear now, Ted, from Coach Derek Lalonde. You asked him the other day about... These final fifteen games, starting with the home game Saturday against the Avalanche and Monday against the Panthers, and here's what he had to say about maintaining the team standards. Is
1: there a concern? I mean, you got what fifteen games left, and paintings are what they are. How do you? I guess motivation is not that difficult, but how do
2: you make these games still really, really relevant and important for everybody? I give the guys credit. Um, you know, we've talked about some things that are gonna. Keep us building forward as a group, and a lot of our core is here right now. I I give the guys a ton of credit on um, the compete and the battle. And we had a meeting this morning, and you know I don't want that to tail off. And basically, I said, "Well, what you've shown through those Boston games, uh, what they've shown compete wise in Nashville, I want to hold you accountable on that because I understand." there might be a human nature to tail off of that a little bit, but we haven't hit that yet. I've actually been, you know, many things you could pick apart from our game today. Obviously the five penalties, I think were a big part of it our inability to finish, but I was very impressed with our compete. We, we, we went and gamed it out there. We really felt we deserved better uh, results, but it's a great question because it's something you battle. was this, this time of year, uh, but To date, our compete and will and want has been pretty darn good, and we would like to keep that standard.
0: Ted, you're right. The season has gone south on the wings. Mathematically, they have the smallest chance of making the playoffs. Really, it's less than 1%, according to moneypuck.com. They have a better chance, 3% odds of winning the lottery and selecting Connor Bedard. That lottery has a date now. It'll be on Monday, May the 8th with non-playoff teams. They can only move up 10 spots in the lottery. The Wings also have about a 6% chance of finishing in the top two and speeding up the rebuild with perhaps a player like Michigan's Adam Fantilli. But first things first, Ted, the Wings are nine points out of the playoffs with 15 games left. That's the mathematics. If they go eight and seven, they would wind up with 85 points, 11 more points than last year. And that would be a good season, right? From Coach Derek Lalonde, he's talked about the team overachieving, but I think they would like to finish up in the eighties, mid eighties, and not perhaps fall below five hundred.
1: No, it's going to be. I'll tell you what. At the beginning of the season, if we had suspect, if you know, I think the way we talked, if they had reached eighty five points, it was probably going to be a pretty successful season. So, mm-hmm. if we can get to that mid eighties, yeah, it would be a good season. I think it would definitely step step forward, but. I tell you, Mark, it's not going to be easy to go eight and seven the rest of the way. There's some tough teams on the schedule. This roster's been a little decimated with the trades and the injuries. So they have some work to do to get to eight and seven. I'll tell you that much. Um, if they can get into the 80s, though, obviously it'll be successful, mm-hmm. especially after the year they had. Um, it's not going to be easy, though. They got to face the Carolina twice, Tampa. <laughs> Pittsburgh twice. There's some t- Colorado tomorrow. There's some tough teams here, and they're going to. They haven't been scoring very many goals lately. Offense has been an issue uh, with no Tyler Bertuzzi and Verana. I mean, you're definitely noticing a little bit of a difference there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, they're playing well defensively. I think the team defense has really improved over the course of the season, but at least right now, scoring is. Well, it's much like it had it's been the last couple years scoring. This is not easy for this team.
0: Coming up next on the podcast, today's interview is with Hall of Famer Brian Troche, the captain of the Islanders who won four straight Stanley Cups in the 1980s. Joining us now is Brian Troche, a seven time Stanley Cup champion with the Islanders, Penguins, and Avalanche. He's also one of Canada's most decorated indigenous athletes, and he's the subject of a new book, All Roads Home a life on and off the ice. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Your Detroit connections go all the way back to Hall of Famer Gordie Howe. He was from Floral, Saskatchewan, just outside of Saskatoon. You're from Val Marie, quite a bit south, closer to the Montana border. In your book, you talk about going to a Gordie Howe Hockey School for $80 a week about meeting Gordy when you played for a Western Hockey League All-Star team against WHA players and about sitting with Gordy and his wife Colleen at the NHL Awards when you won the Calder Trophy as Rookie of the Year. So, Brian, how famous and popular was Gordy in Saskatchewan and what lessons did you learn from Detroit's four-time Stanley Cup champion?
3: Well, I I'll, well, thank you very much for, the, for for the wonderful intro. I think the the whole fun stuff for me mm-hmm. was uh, realizing that Gordy Howe is just a regular person. Mm-hmm. Um, he's bigger than life always. He's like uh, just the most gracious, kindest, soft spoken human being you could ever talk. And how. He just adored his wife Colleen. He always pulled the chair out for her and uh put her coat on for her. It was just those kinds of things that I thought was just such a gentleman. Um, and he was just so and they get on the ice and he was like this menace. And uh, you know, people <laughs> would like to look over their shoulders and say, watch out for Gordy to this, watch out for Gordy that, you don't want to make Gordy mad. But uh he was uh, a big man, he was at the time, you know. He was he got as he got older, you know, obviously we all We all feel like we're just, uh, you know, like getting a little shorter or whatever. But to me, he was always a giant. Um, Mm -hmm. I just held him in such reverence, you know, for all of us in Saskatchewan who, you know, grew up and watched him on TV, black and white, win or lose. He was always so, um, I just, complimentary to his teammates and so proud of the NHL and hockey Mm -hmm. in general. And he conducted himself and his behavior was always pristine. I I just... uh, revered him for so many reasons then you meet him in person and you know you see all these uh these wonderful traits he has and and i said to myself wow if we could all just be a little bit like gordy would be a great human being and uh but he was just a special special person on and off the ice you know like my called her i won rookie of the year and i walked in with with my family and uh you know he was the first guy to greet us at the door you know (laughs) introduce us to colleen and, uh, my family sat down and he said, you're going to come sit with me and Colleen. And that became kind of a, a custom whenever there was like something, something going on, he it was always the pr- he would invite and I'd, I'd sit right with him and Colleen. And all the time, my, my son came to Boston at another, another event, the Bruins were playing the, uh, the Oilers in the finals. And I was given like the man of the year award and, uh, it was for community service. And they presented a trophy and, my son got to sit with, uh, with Gordian and Colleen during the wow. event while I went up on the dais. And I said to myself, <laughs> you can't write those kind of scripts, right? It's just uh, he's he's one of those human beings that just really makes, I think, all of us feel special. Um, you know, he did it to me. And, uh, you know, he he taught me it's the right way to treat people, a right way to treat ladies and uh, conduct yourself as, as I think... Uh, a Saskatchewan person would, but more so how mm-hmm. NHL people would conduct themselves. And so, you know, you, life lessons, but also just the, the quality guy. You know, I've, I've met, I've known his family forever. It seems like, like, we, we, we compete against Marty and Mark, obviously, and get to know Murray and, the, the, you know, the sisters, I say to myself, all the kids. And it's just been a wonderful relationship over the years and, uh, you know, a friendship. I go to the Hall of Fame and he comes down and has breakfast with my mom <laughs> and I the next morning my sisters and brothers are joining us and he's having coffee. Like he's just as proud of me as I think anybody could be. And uh, it, it's just so wonderful to have that kind of a, I don't know, just a, a tweak into Gordy Howe's life and, and make him make it. And he made me feel like I was such a large part of his. So no, he's a special person in my, in my
0: life. Another Detroit connection is Jimmy DeVolano who drafted you in 1974 with the Islanders He was there in Long Island for three of your Stanley Cups and then four more Cups here in Detroit. And I talked to Jimmy yesterday and asked him about that 1974 draft. He said in the first round with the fourth overall pick, the Islanders took your good friend and future linemate Clark Gillies. And in the second round, he said they took a bit of a flyer on you because of a part-time scout, Gary Kirk. And he said, quote, that Gary really, really liked you as an underage pick. And Jimmy said, boy, did we ever get lucky? But can, can you talk about Devolano and GM Bill Torrey and how players, Brian really depend on management, getting things right. Because here in Detroit, Jimmy drafted Bob Probert to be the next Clark Gillies, but things of course don't always work out. You and Clark played together for 14 years and won four straight cups. But again, can you talk a bit about how players really do depend on management to get these things right? Well, without a doubt, I think,
3: I think Jimmy has played a large part in a, in, in hockey, the NHL hockey world, you know, just because of his insight, obviously mm-hmm. he's got a, a pretty good instinct towards hockey players, but um, you know, he was, he was Bill Torrey's go-to guy when it comes to drafting players. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he was one of those guys that was diligent, you know, he took a lot of pride and, Getting to games and doing his homework on hockey players, and getting the getting the the fine tuning done, so to speak, and getting you know know their life as much as the the player, uh, the family, and that kind of stuff. And you know, I've gotten to know Jimmy very well over the years, and uh, you know, he's uh, uh, a quiet guy at the same time, a proud guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's got wonderful history with the Islanders. He took that that same experience to to Detroit, and uh, you know, to their credit, they utilized him. Very, very well. so um, you know, my, my hat's off to Jimmy for a whole bunch of reasons. great friend over the years and went to see them be, be you know and it's so nice that he said it took a flyer, but I think they did take a flyer. I was small for my size. <laughs> I was you know 170 pounds, you know, five foot ten and I put on 15 pounds and grew an inch and a half. So go figure, you know that I, I, at 17, 18 years old, it is a bit of a flyer where they're taking underage guys. Sure. Um, but they had to take me in the top two rounds. I'm sure they had other players that were probably more uh, developed. Um, But, you know, if they wait to the third round, maybe they couldn't have gotten me. They'd have to wait another year. So, yeah, they took a a chance, I think, on a young kid who, you know, still had some growth in him. And I think, you know, still, but I was hungry. I wanted to make the NHL. I had a a, a great mentor in junior, Tiger Williams. And Tiger and I were, he he wanted to get the NHL. So did I. And you have a big brother like Tiger, um, you know, to kind of play left wing and kind of mentor you through junior hockey. And mm-hmm. he made hockey fun for me because no, he, he was my Bob Probert in junior hockey. And all of a sudden, you know, I go to the Islanders, I got Clark Gillies. So the hockey gods are looking <laughs> over me to say, hey, I'll give you a couple of protectors here, little guy. Don't take advantage of it. You appreciate it. And, and I did, you know, to know that you have those type of players that are good, good hockey players, hungry hockey players that want to do well and. You know they make you feel like you're 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 part of their life, and we're kind of pushing and pulling each other. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, it was it was a great time. Uh, Bill Tory uh, again, Bill and and Jimmy, good tandem. I mean they they both did their their homework. I think for me it was really wonderful getting to know Gary Kirk. You, you talk about Gary Kirk was a bit sure. of a, yeah. a part timer for for the Islanders. You know he was very high on me as was Earl Ingerfield because they were the Western Scouts at the time, and I can't thank Earl and Gary enough because like. I think they did their homework on me enough to to sell me to 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 Jimmy and Bill. But when Bill called me up, he goes, "Brian, we're you're, you're, we're we're going to fly you down and and uh, you know offer you a contract." And I'm like, "Holy cow! This <laughs> is like this is like spectacular." I get to meet the general manager. I get to, and it was just it's one of those things. that's like a dream, right? And then when okay. it happened, it happens like in a, a flash, like snap of a finger, boom, boom. But it's also fresh in my mind still that that first meeting with bill offered you a contract and it just happened so quickly and it's just exciting and uh you know bill kept it exciting for us you know kept the core group together for a long time and they just kept adding pieces and you know it's you need that you need that uh that leadership and that uh that vision so to speak from your general manager and scouts because they're going to build they're going to build your team and you know if there's pieces missing they're gonna they're gonna plug it in there so yeah, you know, to their credit, they were they were a great team, and we had a really good run there in the early, early, late 70s, early 80s.
0: Brian, how about the connection to Steve Eiserman who said you were his boyhood hero and the reason he wore number 19. In 1998, when Eisenman passed you for 10th in all-time scoring, he said, as soon as he came into the league, I followed his entire career. In some ways, I tried to play like him. We all have role models, and he's mine. Iserman also said, I like the way he conducted himself on the ice. He was a quiet guy who played really hard, just a good all around prototypical centerman who could do everything. So Brian, why did you wear number 19 yourself? And what do you remember most when you competed against the Red Wings captain?
3: Well, it's a high compliment, obviously a little humbling, you know, Steve's Mm -hmm. just a
0: special person, number one, but number
3: two, he's just an explosive dynamic hockey player. Like we, we heard about him, you know, coming into the league, and I think he was drafted the same year as Lafontaine. There was like, there was just a lot of talk about a young Iserman and mm-hmm. all the all that crop of uh, talent that was coming into the NHL that year. And, and Steve didn't disappoint. I mean, um, he was he came in and he was uh, he was a little terror. He wasn't big, but he was uh, shifty, uh, great hand to distributed the puck so well. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, he could score, and he was nifty great little shifty little stick handler and you know we we were uh we were so impressed And in those days we didn't get a chance to go head to head a lot but it's really kind of fun when you did you know to be able to like uh you know like not just kind of like see how he competed and how he you know dug in and he was and so um we got to we got to play a little bit against each other and you know kind of compete and it was really kind of fun but um, you know he, he's given me some compliments over the years and and I mm-hmm. thank him for it profusely I mean he's just a, a great kid all the way around and I'm wishing him well I, you know as, as an executive too but I always say to myself you know the you know when when someone you know gives you that you know hey, I have my boyhood idol you know like that's such a compliment and but I was number 19 for a bunch of different reasons. Like uh, I came into the league, it was the lowest number left on the team. Uh, <laughs> Craig Cameron had worn that jersey the year before. He's 260 pounds and six foot three. So it was like a big giant moo moo dress on me. <laughs> so, um, but they rolled the sleeves up, they did a little sewing on it, and I got I got to wear uh, through most of that first year because we got the second set of jerseys in, in February for the playoffs. And uh, just in case we made the playoffs, but things worked out. And it was really kind of fun. You know, like I was 19 years old at the time. I thought, that's kind of fun. Paul Henderson was number 19. He scored the big goal for Canada. At right. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm thinking of all the 19s, Larry Robinson, you know, Pye McKenzie and John Pronovo and Pittsburgh. And every 19 that was in the league at the time, you know, I'm like Rick McLeish. And it was really kind of cool to be able to like don that Twitter and, and say to yourself, this is going to be my, my, my number. I'm going to make it my identity. And, you know, to kind of have the, the fun that's happened to me over my year, then you know, you see other players grab a hold of it and make number 19 their own. And, and they have the same success. They make 19 famous, Joe Sacking, Steve Eiserman, and whoever else, Taves. And it's really kind of cool that it's become yeah. like a, a nice little number, kind of like number nine, you know, Gordie Howe and Morris Richard, that kind of stuff. So uh, yeah, we all, we all share a wonderful number. And, and uh, it's, it's really kind of cool when, um, when I think back and, in all this, uh, these wonderful little things that happened to you, but, Steve's a, Steve's a special, special kid. Uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, a wonderful, wonderful career. So, and he, he, you know, he kind of like, he, he, he made his, he, he made his game for him at towards the end. He's like, yeah, you get 160 points and, and not mm-hmm. win. All of a sudden he said, you know what, I'm going to make 80, 90, hundred points and, and find a way to like contribute in other ways. And next thing you know, he's blocking shot, he's taking big face offs. And to his credit, I mean, next thing you know, they're, they're raising Stanley Cup over his head. And he's, uh, he did like me. He's got the biggest smile in the world because that's a that's a special <laughs> moment for all of us when you can, when you can lift that cup over your head and be, uh, you know that dream of raising a Stanley Cup over your head becomes reality. It's it's pretty special. So great on him, and uh, can you continue success, to Steve? Because I you know it's uh it's been great listening to all your wonderful, humbling comments over the years. But thank <laughs> you,
0: Brian. Scotty Bowman was asked as well to compare the two of you, and he said you were both strong physically. Both played their best in the playoffs. He said Steve had a little more acceleration, but you are probably as good a one on one defensive player as he's ever seen. Now, Steve played 22 years, about four more years than you. And in the regular season, he had about 300 more points than you. But in the playoffs, it was kind of interesting. Your stats are almost identical. You had 71 goals, Steve had 70. He had 185 points. You had 182 playoff points. So why were the Islanders so good in the playoffs? In the book, you talk about one year, a 1-4 system for checking, and the Red Wings were playing a 1-1-3, similar to what Derek Lalonde did in Tampa Bay, a 1-1-3 system. So why were the Islanders so good in the playoffs? And why, Brian, do some players just play better in the playoffs?
3: You know, that's a great question. I think I think a lot of us have that competitive edge. I think the you know, the adrenaline kicks in. I think it you can ramp your game. If you can find another level in the playoffs, I think okay. it's gonna help every player. I think it helps your team. Um, I think Steve took a lot of pride in his game. Obviously, I think when you're when you have leadership uh, um skills within you i think they they come to the fore um i think you you tend to like steve a very quiet leader but explosive uh absolutely like as far as like um just bearing down in in the really tough situations at key moments in the game Mm -hmm. uh you want to be the guy that's counted on obviously and uh so yeah to to compare stats is wonderful steve was to his credit i mean he he wasn't a big physical player. So like he, he wasn't going to bang bait people, but he was shifty He was tough, tough to hit. So that, that I think, you know, you, you end up having a different kind of game in that sense. But for me, you know, somebody bumped me. I was like, Oh yeah, you want to play that game? Here we go. And, you know, but it takes a toll over years, you know, and I say to myself, I I shouldn't have probably played as physical. Cause I, I'm not a big, big man in that sense. I'm not a six, one, you know, 200 pounds. I was, you know, 5'11", 200 pounds, mm-hmm. but. You know I, I could I could take punishment I could I could sting a guy once in a while um like that like we both love to score goals we both love to you know set up our teammates I mean take pride and contribute offensively but it was a kind of rely on the moment you know like you when when whatever's needed at the time you want to be the guy on the ice the last minute of a game you want to take the big face off you want you want to be relied on and I think okay you know um I think that kind of comparison for me is uh, a bigger compliment for Steve and myself.
0: Brian, thanks for your time so far on the podcast. Just a couple of more questions. Can you talk about ex Wing Dave Lewis and how hard it was to see Lewis and Billy Harris traded to the Kings for Butch Goring in 1980? Lewis was here in Detroit when Eiserman was named captain. He was a veteran and he really helped Steve behind the scenes. Eventually, he was an assistant coach and a head coach here. Back in 1980, though, your team had gone through two straight playoff losses in 78 and 79 against the Leafs and Rangers. Lewis was dealt along with Harris. Now, Harris was the first overall pick in franchise history back in 1972, and Dave was a second round pick in 1973. Now, Jimmy Devilano, O'Brien said there were other factors in winning the cup that year. He said Gordie Lane and Ken Morrow were key additions, but Just as the Wings now are dealing with the trades of Bertuzzi and Ronick and Sunquest and Verona, there can be real consequences, right, of not winning. And sometimes you lose dear friends like Dave Lewis and Billy Harris, who never got to experience those four straight Stanley Cups.
3: Yes, it is. It's very tough to see teammates, friends leave a team. Uh, You're building a bond. You have a, you know, you're trying to all win together. So you rely on each other and, depend on each other on a daily basis and dave's good saskatchewan kid you know like he's from kindersley and you know we just kind of share the saskatchewan roots and those values of being a saskatchewan kid and you know mm-hmm. kind of the, the the road to the stanley cup it's not easy you know the road to the nhl is not easy it's you know it's bus trips and junior hockey and rough hockey even and you know we we shared a lot of that you know to, um and then billy harris the godfather my old my oldest son. So to see those two guys go, uh, you got to give up something to get something. And mm-hmm. apparently, you know, that was the price that was needed in order to get a Butch Goring and, you know, Billy Smith had history with Butch Goring and he was pretty excited to see Butch come. Obviously we're all a little, little sad to see Dave and Billy go, uh, and not have, they'll be able to share the, the glory of, of, of Stanley cup, but it becomes part of the lore, right? That's, that's part of the history. And, um, you know, to, to, to know that Dave went on to have the accomplished career he did in, in coaching, mm-hmm. coach the great players that he did, um, have some great success that way. Um, I can't be happier for Dave and Brenda, his wife, and and to, to be able to like see them today and talk about our Islander days and some of the wonderful stuff that's happened to him over the years and the fun stuff that's happened to me over the years. So um, you know, still a good friend and uh, obviously when we bump into each other, we we have uh we, we share family stories and it's really kind of, kind of great to be able to like bump into Billy Harris too. And, and, uh, still buds. It's, it's great. You know, he, he's kind of a little more recluse up in up in Northern Ontario right now, but okay. that th- those friendships, they never go away, right? Those bonds, they never go away in hockey. And, uh, it, whether it's short, short period of time together, you know, everybody's got a great memory and we kind of tease and poke fun at each other. And okay, we're a little thinner, <laughs> thinner hairlines now, a little grayer along the, some of it. And, uh, but the, the stories are pretty sharp.
0: Brian, in your book, you talk about one of Mike Bossy's final games here at the old Joe Lewis Arena, 1987. It was March 19th, 1987. And what was notable about that game was you said Mike could hardly walk after the game. His bad back forced him out of the NHL after only 10 seasons. In that game, the Islanders won 3-2. Mike had two assists. You tied the game in the third period and Pat LaFontaine scored the winner with four seconds left, what do you remember, Brian, about that game? And can you talk about how Mike Bossy paid the price, as you mentioned in the book, to go into those difficult areas to score goals and win those championships? Well,
3: yeah, thank you. Yeah, so Mike, Mike, Mike has, uh, uh, you know, obviously greatest goal scorer ever. You know, like a purest goal scorer. What he's got all these wonderful um, credits to his name, and well deserved. I mean, the guy is a scoring machine. Um, but what people didn't realize was the playmaking ability the the acceleration he had the the skating mm-hmm. ability and the the dekes and dives and and that kind of stuff so um he was just underrated in playmaking um you know just underrated probably for his defensive game underrated for competitiveness all those things and you know Mike Mike wanted had to go to the dirty areas and, and the game in in the 70s and 80s was was pretty rough um, you know so you had to pay a price to go to those areas to score goals from the net you
0: know mm-hmm.
3: corners and um yeah so people were taking pot shots and obviously so yeah he he did pay a price and as everybody did in that era we all did everybody nobody nobody was exempt you know we all had to to, to play a part of that physical game and whether you're doling it out or, or absorbing but uh no I think it took its toll on Mike and obviously when when you have a the kind of pride Mike did and when you're not playing to the level he wanted to play, he said, I don't want to play. I don't want to be just okay. I want to be great. I want to be able to mm. contribute every game. And, you know, that he, towards the end, he was, I was putting his putting his socks and shoes on to get to the rink. You know, he couldn't bend over and then tying the skates up in the locker room, going into the training room. So nobody, he wouldn't be embarrassed. And he goes out, scores goals, you know, creates plays. And, you know, he's Mike Bossy. And then after the game, you know, he's, you know, he steps the board, we're putting ice on his back, stretching him out to get him on the plane the next day. And I'm like, oh yeah, you're going to be fine. Away we go.
2: Like, <laughs> you
3: know, you're still Mike Bossy on the ice, but off the ice, he was hurting. And, uh, you know, there's a long life after, after hockey, you know, you're, you're young, you're 30, 35 years old. And, you know, he's got a lot of life left. And we, you know, we, we forget about that, you know, through the course of it, we just keep, you know, I, I won't say brutalizing our body, but yeah, you know, pushing our bodies to the limit physically, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, he's a special, special hockey player. And, uh, what he was able to do in spite of his bad back and, you know, like you said, create a couple of assists and, you know, Fontaine gets the winner. I mean, it's just those kinds of things, you know, are, are become folklore for, for a guy like Mike Bossy and what he was able to do. And, you know, he couldn't get his skates on in Minnesota. I think it was two days before and I think or a week before that and scores a hat trick. And I said, <laughs> okay, this even though he's got a bad back and he can't walk, he'll just go on the ice and score goals. You just kind of take it for granted that he'll do it for another 10 years, you know, but Um, not to be you know we we lost him way too early the NHL lost him way too early and um, you know he just wanted to he wanted to be the greatest goal scorer he didn't want to be okay he didn't want to be you know kind of like you know just average he wanted to be he wanted to be the best he wanted to be the best top top of the league all the time and uh, took a lot of pride in
0: it and finally Brian there's a Michigan hockey connection with your indigenous background Abby Rock has been one of our guests on the podcast and She talked about breaking barriers and making the game more accessible to Native Americans and other minority groups. She's from the Sioux and became the first Indigenous player on the U.S. women's national team. And she's been on many tours with you and John Shabbat, another former Red Wing. So. Brian, what messages are you taking to young hockey players? And have you seen the fruits of your labor making a difference in people's lives?
3: Well, that's a great question. It's a little hard to gauge as far as we're making a difference. But here's what we notice. And uh, we notice that it inspires. We're trying to inspire and trying to, I don't know, influence the next generation of, uh, we call it student-athlete. Because okay. we not, not only talking about chasing a dream in the in, in sport of hockey or whatever your desire is, your dream is, music, art, whatever it is. But, um, you know, continue education, you know, you know, be proud that nobody likes a dumb athlete, you know, <laughs> but we always try to say to ourselves, like if we can get that message in there and uh, we make hockey accessible for everyone, not just uh, the very best of the best, but for everyone, whether it's uh, gender, whether it's for, you know, the skinny person, whether it's for the person who's, who feels like, oh, you' a little overweight, whatever, you know, you, you can play hockey. It's for everybody. And uh, that's what we hope. That's what we're trying to build. We're making it, uh, you know, Abby's doing a wonderful job in, 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 in her messaging. Mm-hmm. She's a wonderful ambassador for, the, for, for hockey in general, but for, for gals hockey, for uh, indigenous young hockey players, I think it's, it, it's just a good message. You know, diversity is a wonderful thing. You know, like, there's a lot of diversity in the NHL and, and in hockey in general. You know, doesn't matter what your background is, you know, Scottish, Irish, you know, Russian, you know, Canadian, you know, Indigenous, you know, it doesn't matter where you come from. If you got a love of the game and you can come go on the ice and be a, a big part of it and enjoy the game, that's what we're trying to do. And um, you want to try to push it to the highest level you can. And uh, if you have a dream of playing in the Olympics or you have a dream of playing in the NHL and raising the Stanley Cup over your head, right on. Uh, take it as far as you can and use it as your... your you know, your motivation to get an education or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, experiences in life and life skills and hockey is good that way. So um, yeah, we're proud of of our indigenous athletes that are playing in the HL and all the young kids that are playing currently. And we think there's another generation right behind them and uh, females, boys, I think it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. So, you know, Keep your eyes open and hang on because I think there's another crop coming along.
0: Brian, thanks again today for joining us on the podcast and talking about Gordie Howe, Clark Gillies, Mike Bossy, Steve Eisenman, of course, Scotty Bowman, Dave Lewis, and your native heritage. Once again, the book is called all roads home, a life on and off the ice with former Globe and Mail reporter, Steven Brunt. All the best Brian from Ted Colfin and I here in Detroit. Pleasure guys.
3: Thank you so much. it really Wonderful, wonderful podcast. Thank you.
0: Our thanks again to Brian trache and those kind words at the end. Now let's hear from Steve Eiserman from his news conference two weeks ago on Friday trade deadline day. He was asked about trading Jacob Verona to the blues for a seventh round pick in 2025 and forward Dylan McLaughlin. Here was his response wishing Verona all the best in St. Louis. Well, uh, I don't think I can really go into details on On a lot of the things that have gone on, um, I would just say I wish Jacob uh, the best of uh, luck in his hockey career, um, and uh, on and off the ice. Uh, it was just time to time for both parties to move on. Ted, Jacob Verona will make his first appearance against the Red Wings next week. Uh, Detroit will be in St. Louis next Tuesday and then back here on Thursday at Little Caesars Arena. He has four goals in five games with the Blues, three of them on the power play. But after all that happened, and we've documented that here on the podcast, the shoulder injury, the NHL, NHLPA player assistance program being put on waivers, benched in the minors, all those things, Ted, there was really no way, was there that he was going to play another shift for this Steve Eisenman, Derek Lalonde team?
1: Well, he did come back here, but yeah, I mean, what, he he was healthy, scratched several games, really didn't do too much in the games he did play, but boy, I mean, yeah, he's had a nice start in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. The kid is a goal scorer, there's no question about it, he knows how to score goals, a couple of those goals he scored in St. Louis were just, you know, they were nifty little goals they really were ironically i think tonight isn't he in washington mark i mm-hmm. think he, he's yes playing the capitals again tonight <laughs> and then we were joking around the other day in the office it's like i wonder if they're gonna there's no way they'll do a video tribute for him here next thursday well there I, oh. I can't i doubt very <laughs> i, d- I doubt it him.
0: right right
1: yeah just hope for the best for him he's a good guy yes you yeah. hope on and off the ice things do work out well for him and yeah obviously on the ice right now in st louis he's that team needs scoring and well this team needed scoring or needs scoring and when he's at his best he knows how to put the puck in the net there's no question
0: finally let's hear from adam ernie he leads all detroit forwards and hits with 141 and block shots with 45 he has eight goals and eight assists in 50 games here he is talking about returning to the team after clearing waivers and playing in Grand Rapids for about a month.
3: A lot more ice time down there, uh, a lot more touches of the puck. Um, but like I said, I thought I was playing well before. Um, I think it was just a matter of you know when I was going to come back up and just making sure I played well and worked on my game down there.
0: Ted, what do you make of those two stats? Hits and blocks, shots, subjective numbers in some rinks. We've talked about that. Absolutely. The Wings are ranked sixth in block shots, and there have been injuries, right? Two broken hands for Bertuzzi, Zadina's broken leg, Rasmussen's knee injury. Sider and Sherratt are ranked one, two in block shots. Not all good teams block shots. Vegas is number one with one of the biggest blue lines in the league, but the Flyers, Canadians, and Blue Jackets are next in line. The Flyers came into here and blocked 31 shots to beat the Wings. Two to one, it usually means you don't have the puck. And same thing with hits, right? The Wings are ranked 20th in hits, more than last year. But top teams like the Avalanche, Devils, Maple Leafs, and Hurricanes are near the bottom. But combined, those are effort plays. And I just wondered what your thoughts are about the team's big improvement in those two categories and how Ernie sometimes does supply some of that heavy hockey. No,
1: you're right. They are subjective. That's the thing. It's tough to really put too much credence in those because some rinks, they dish them out like candy. And then other rinks, the stats crew really goes out of their way not to (laughs) put them out. It's the eye test, obviously, Mark. It's the eye test. And Ernie's one of those guys that will, you know, he's, he's that type of player. Interestingly, though, you wonder... On and will he be brought back next season? I kind of doubt it. And I tell you one thing: we haven't brought him up here in this show. But what a start for Alex Chase on! I mean, he's right, played, right, played well here, really well. I can definitely see Alex Chase on being brought back next year. I mean, he does a lot of the little things. He's boy, has he been a revelation on the power play in a small sample size? He's done a really good job, and he can kind of play that type of game. Maybe not quite the Adam Ernie type of grit game, but he can. He can. You know, he. You can kind of play that game, so Ernie will get a job somewhere in the NHL. I don't think there's any question. Uh, he plays hard. He's willing to give up his body that way, and it's a. I like the stat, but just you know, take it with a grain of salt
0: absolutely and that'll do it for episode 87 of our detroit news detroit red wings podcast again thanks for your time today ted and you can find all the ted's stories online at detroitnews.com as well as on our octopulse facebook page thanks again everyone for listening rating and reviewing these podcasts